0: Listener Production. Gidget Foundation Australia acknowledges the continuing connection to culture, lands, waterways, and communities of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And we pay our respects to traditional owners of country, both past and present, throughout Australia. This podcast contains conversations about suicide, loss, depression, and anxiety that some listeners may find distressing. If you or anyone you know needs help, don't hesitate. Contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or emergency services on triple
1: zero. There was no same-sex couples represented in the media at all. Like you never saw them on TV. You never saw them in magazines. When I was younger, I didn't know if it would actually ever be possible for me. When Millie
0: and her partner Jessie decided to walk the path of parenthood, they didn't realise
1: just how rough the path would be. There's so many logistics and things I just didn't even think of. We called up a couple of companies and a couple of companies were very much like, no, we don't accept LGBT patients.
0: The price of parenthood for LGBTQI plus families is high. They're faced with the added medical, financial and societal pressures unique to same-sex couples. And it's an experience that sees some pay with their mental health.
1: I just imagined all these make-believe scenarios in my mind. I loved him so much. I wanted him so much. I'd worked so hard for him. I just didn't necessarily believe that I had the power to keep him safe. Pregnancy and
0: the first year of parenthood is a time of major change in a person's life that without the right support can lead to or prolong perinatal depression and anxiety. For too long, these parents have suffered in silence, but that doesn't have to be where the story ends. Hi, I'm Davina Smith, and in this podcast, we tell the silent truth of PNDA loudly, and we meet some of the one in five mothers and one in 10 fathers who've lived through it. Ready to start talking.
1: I'm Millie, and I'm one of the one in five mothers who've experienced perinatal depression and anxiety.
0: In today's episode, we'll be discussing the unique challenges LGBTQI plus families face on the journey to parenthood. Every LGBTQI plus family will have a different experience, so clinical counsellor Amelia Walker will be joining us later to discuss just how important gender-inclusive care is and where you can find it. Hi, Millie. Hello. Hey, take us
1: right back to the start. Were you always someone who wanted to have kids? Always. Always. And I don't remember a definitive moment, but I must have been like very young. Like I'm talking like five or six and I knew I wanted to be a mum. I come from a huge family and I always, always, always wanted kids.
0: And was it something that you always thought you would look for in a partner as well?
1: It's difficult because I think when I was younger, there was no same-sex couples represented in the media at all. Like, you never saw them on TV. You never saw them in magazines, movies. When I was younger, I didn't know if it would actually ever be possible for me.
0: So how did you and Jesse meet? And was it love at first sight?
1: Pretty much it was love at first sight, honestly. I mean, not at exact sight, but we met in a pub in Manly and we moved really quickly. So there's like a joke that is basically like, what do lesbians bring on the second date? And it's a U-hole. That's like a a standard lesbian joke. But when you know, when you know. Exactly right. And I'm such a firm believer of that. I really do think it was within like two or three weeks that we moved in together. Yeah, it was quick and we have just never, ever looked back.
0: And the plan to have kids then, where was that in the scope of things?
1: It was always something that we discussed very early on, especially because it was something I always wanted to do. I always wanted to carry children as well. Like I wanted to experience pregnancy, whereas Jessie, that's her worst nightmare. Um, (laughs) She didn't want to do that, but she said, you know, if I couldn't have kids, she would. But yeah, it was always something we discussed, but it's obviously, you know, you have to save a lot of money for all the IVF and things. So it took a bit longer than expected. What was involved in your process? First of all, we actually ended up going with a known donor. So we first of all searched for, I guess, like an anonymous donor, but we decided we'd prefer a known one. And then luckily a member of our family agreed to do that. So we did do at-home insemination first. The turkey-based Yeah, literally. <laughs> I'm not joking. Because I, I didn't know. Like, no one teaches you these things. And I thought... I'm going to need a turkey baster, right? <laughs> Genuinely. So I went to one of those really fancy cook shops, wow. you know, like the yeah. like fancy cookware, and there was two women working there and they were like prude and true, or whatever. <laughs> they were like two women in their like late 50s, really like well-spoken. I was like sweating. I was so embarrassed because I was like, they're going to know, they're going to know what I'm doing there. And I was just like looking around, I was like, oh yeah, this turkey baster looks quite good. And then I was like, I can't buy... just the turkey baster it's gonna be so obvious so i bought a whole cookware (laughs) a whole cookware like i bought a roasting tray wow and like a thermometer and basically they thought you were cooking a (laughs) turkey (laughs) seriously i went through this whole charade of how i was cooking a roast turkey but yeah i I don't have the turkey baster anymore but i have the cookware it's actually lasted a really long time (laughs) did it work It did. Wow. Genuinely, the first ever time we tried it, I got pregnant, which was mind-blowing. But unfortunately, we did lose that baby.
0: From that first loss, though, to lose that first baby when you had so much hope and expectation and this was all going to plan and then it didn't, that must have been soul-destroying.
1: It was. I couldn't believe that it worked and then it didn't. And then we just kept trying for another year and it didn't work. And that's when we decided, you know what, let's just go down the IVF route. I found that really difficult. I I really struggled with that loss. How did you recover from that? It was a very unusual time in multiple ways. So it was March 2020. So it was literally as the world shut mm-hmm. down. At the time I had my foster daughter living with me. She Was maybe 14 or 15 at the time. And it was, we were kind of thrown into homeschooling and all of that crazy thing. So I think I just ended up being so busy that I kind of put off the grief. And then my foster daughter got reunited with her mum, which was obviously the happiest day of my entire life, like to finally get her home to her mum. But once she had left my house, then that's when the grief really hit me because suddenly I was completely alone. And I guess the journey of IVF
0: begins as well, Then, What was that like for you being an LGBTQI couple?
1: We put the feelers out like, you know, you just Google on the internet IVF and we called up a couple of companies and a couple of companies were very much like, no, we don't accept LGBT patients. So I was like, oh, no, we won't go with those. And then as I was searching, this company Rainbow Fertility popped up and they are an IVF company that is specifically for LGBT people and they just made us feel so comfortable. The initial meeting they confirmed our pronouns and they just didn't assume anything. From the second we met with them we just felt immediately comfortable.
0: Which is so important because for anyone the IVF journey is very stressful. You don't need the added stress of people judging you and asking the wrong question.
1: Exactly. That's exactly right. Like it is a daunting thing to do. Once we obviously conceived the baby, then you go for scans and it gets awkward and people will say like, oh, who's this, your sister or something. But the IVF journey itself was fabulous. How quickly did you fall pregnant then with time? The first time. Wow. Which again... I just couldn't believe it happened first time. And then a lot of that trauma from that loss came back because I just thought, oh, first time again, like nothing happens first time, you know, this isn't going to work out for us. And that was really scary. I kind of didn't want to go for any scans. Like I didn't show up to my 12-week scan. I just couldn't do it. I was just too scared. I thought if I don't have any scans or don't think about it, then this baby would just, like, carry on growing and, it, like, it worked. So, I mean, I don't recommend that method of, you know, burying your head in the sand and ignoring everything, but I think I just needed to do that to protect my peace at that particular time. And protect your heart because mm. it had been broken and disappointed once
0: before. Exactly. Did that stop you bonding with Tide, do you think, in those early days of, of, of not having the scans? and
1: I think I actively tried not to because... I would convince myself it wasn't going to work. I had really convinced myself that it wasn't. So I think you do try and disassociate a little bit because you don't want to have your heart broken. I wouldn't let Jesse buy anything for the baby. I don't think we bought anything until maybe like 20 weeks. So at what point did you accept, I'm pregnant? and I'm going to have a baby. (laughs) Um, It was quite late on. I'm quite a, like, laissez-faire person as it is. So I think it was a combination of that and also kind of not getting my act together. (laughs) We moved house when I was, I think, 22 weeks pregnant. So we moved from the northern beaches to the central coast where we bought our house. And that was in the middle of the biggest lockdown, that 100-day lockdown. I think it was once we kind of came out of that that I was like, oh, my God, I've not bought anything and I really need to go shopping. <laughs> was your
0: mental health at all on the radar during the
1: pregnancy? Yeah. So we moved and I and I absolutely love my house. Like we had a five-year plan. We basically lived in a shed to afford to buy a house. Then we got there, we bought this house, it's like off-grid, in the middle of the forest, in the middle of nowhere, and it's just beautiful. And I love the remoteness and the isolation, and we have animals and we grow our vegetables, and it's so us. But what I wasn't expecting was for no one to be able to come and visit us at all because of the lockdowns. I ended up getting pregnant and my sister didn't see me pregnant until... The day before I was induced, that was the first day that she was able to come because the borders had opened. Mm -hmm. So I think the isolation that I felt at that particular time, being completely on my own and having no one able to visit, I think that's when I really started to experience some prenatal depression and anxiety. And then I just assumed that would go away once the baby was here. I really felt like it would be a non-issue. But yeah, it wasn't. Tide arrived. What was the birth like? The birth was, in hindsight, very stressful. Mm. Jesse did this amazing job of sheltering me from a lot of the stressful things that were going on. We had had a routine midwife appointment and I still hadn't packed my hospital bags. Like I said, I'm very relaxed. I think I was 37 weeks and five days. I got home and I thought, oh, maybe I'll start packing my hospital bag. (laughs) And the phone rang and it was the midwife and she said, you've got preeclampsia, you need to come into the hospital now and bring your hospital bag. And I was like, oh, I haven't packed my hospital bag. And she's (laughs) like, I suggest you pack your hospital bag. So it kind of started a bit quicker than we'd anticipated. So then they induced me. They sort of said, you know, we'll give you this gel and you'll have a really, really good night's sleep. Try and get all your rest because we'll come round at six in the morning and we'll check your cervix and if you're dilated... I guess on. game on. That's yep. the one. Um, and if not, we'll give you some more gel. So I thought, oh, we've got time, and we ordered Dominoes. I had this huge no. prawn no. pizza. <laughs> by about half past seven, I was having massive contractions. So this was an hour later what or two to hours prawn later. Pizza? <laughs> oh my god! I I vomited that <laughs> everywhere. Um, by. Like 8.30 in the evening, my waters had broken and Jessie, I think, was a bit annoyed because she'd thought she was having a really good night's <laughs> sleep ready for like the morning. There was no um, sleep. There was no sleep and we just, yeah, went straight into it basically. And by the time I went downstairs to the birthing suite, I think I was already like eight or nine centimetres dilated. So it was incredibly painful. Tide was posterior, so the baby kind of rubs on your spine which was painful lots of things started going wrong all the machines were beeping and jesse kind of sheltered me from a lot of that and i think a lot of the nurses were kind of starting to panic and then the next thing i know there was like 25 people in the room and they were saying okay we're getting this baby out now you've got like one push or you're going for a cesarean and so i was like right i'm just going to give this a really good push and tide was born so at the time i didn't find the birth stressful but In hindsight, I think I have more so now. Like retrospectively, I found it more stressful, if that possibly makes any sense at all. Did Jessie ever confide in you about how stressful that time was and how much she sheltered you? Yes. We we talked about it afterwards because... Pretty much as soon as Tide was born, maybe 20 minutes later, I was like, oh my God, I loved that. I would do that again. (laughs) And Jessie was like, are you insane? Like, what is wrong with you? That was the most traumatic experience of my life. Because I lost loads of blood. I had a paesomotomy and... A few other things went wrong when they put Tide on my chest. I I was like, I'm gonna be sick, and so the first thing I ever said to poor Tide was, "I'm gonna be sick, get it off me." <laughs> like, I don't think I like even knew if it was a boy or I was like, "Get it off me." <laughs> <laughs> What
0: were those first few days like then with
1: Taj? It was a bubble. I yeah, I enjoyed my time in the hospital honestly, which sounds so unusual, but I felt safe and confident because the midwives would come around every couple of hours. They would check my like latch for breastfeeding. They would bring me my food, like you know, <laughs> it's like, like a hotel. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm a simple girl of simple pleasures, and like honestly, <laughs> I really enjoyed that. And they were so kind, and I felt empowered to be a mum with their assistance, and then you suddenly like leave hospital and you're like on your own. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and that's when the thoughts started popping into your mm. head.
0: You weren't a person who used oh to get God. scared or, no. or negative.
1: I was completely fearless. Such a happy-go-lucky person. So chilled, so positive, but I just got scared. It was like a genuine primal fear that I thought I knew what to do like intrinsically I did. I I knew how to change a nappy, I knew how to feed them and I knew that how to burp a baby like I said I've got a huge family. So all of the practical things I knew how to do, but I just couldn't cope with how scary it was. I used to set my alarm on my phone on the hour, every hour, all night. So I'd go to bed at say 10 p.m. and I'd have my phone set 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, like all through the night. The alarm would go off. Sometimes, obviously, that would wake the baby, sometimes it wouldn't. And then I would creep up to the bassinet and I'd be like watching them to see if they were breathing. If I wasn't convinced, I'd be like poking at Ty just to like check. So I wasn't sleeping at all. And I think sleep deprivation really is going to make you not feel well. I used to have these crazy visions, which now I understand it's like intrusive thoughts. But at the time I was just like, "What? why am I playing out these crazy scenarios in my mind? Like I used to imagine someone would be holding tide and they would drop tide on the floor and he would hit his head and be bleeding or I'd imagine I was behind the wheel and I'd be driving and the car would veer off the road and we would crash and all the glass would be flying and all these different things and I just imagined all these make-believe scenarios in my mind and I guess now I think it was because I loved him so much, I wanted him so much, I'd worked so hard for him, I just wanted to keep him safe and I didn't necessarily believe that I had the power to keep him safe. It was just terrifying.
0: Where was Jessie and how was she coping in all this time?
1: So Jessie obviously went back to work like you do. Obviously, I was on maternity leave. We'd move to the Central Coast. She was still working in Sydney, so she had maybe a 50 minute drive to work. And I would get up at 4am before she left for work and make her a coffee because
0: you I were the done, one staying
1: at home. Because so. I was the one staying <laughs> yes. at home, yeah. And I did that too. And <laughs> also because I'd done it a few times and then I thought to myself, oh, if, if today I don't make the coffee, she's going to die. And I suddenly started getting, again, like these OCD things that I had to do. I had to do things in a certain order. I had to do things at a certain time. If I didn't do them, something terrible was going to happen. And it always centred around either Jessie dying or Ty dying. So I'd get up at four in the morning, even though I'd obviously set my alarm on the hour, every hour, every night. And then I would sit on my phone and, you know, the Find My Friends app. So I'd sit on my phone for the hour and I'd watch her move slowly on her way to work. And like occasionally it would pause and I'd be like, oh, my God. Obviously, she's probably at traffic lights, but I think, oh, maybe she's been in a crash. That really got too much for both of us, I think. So she did quit her job. And then we're in a position where she's not working. I'm on maternity leave. We've got a baby. We've got a mortgage. We've got like hardly any savings. You know, we literally can't afford to live. But I don't know if I can live without her being in the room with me. So yeah, it was a really stressful time that then became compounded with the fact that we really didn't have any money to support us. When
0: did it come to you that maybe this wasn't just baby blues, this wasn't just me being protective, this might have been something a bit bigger?
1: I think it was a gradual realisation, but I think definitely the moment when I made Jesse quit work, I think Tide was maybe three, three and a half months old, that was really the turning point where all my loved ones and people around me were like, you need to do something about this you need to get help you need to speak to someone because yeah I couldn't continue on like that so I did speak to Gidget I went on antidepressants anti-anxiety medicine and honestly I feel like that saved my life at mm. that particular time I did go to one doctor first of all the GP was like really unsympathetic. She was just really negative. I said, you know, I feel like I need medication. She's like, oh, no, we can't give you medication. And was just, Mm. yeah, really, I could tell straight away she was just really unsupportive. And that kind of put me off. And then my sister and her partner and Jessie arranged another appointment with a doctor. They did a lot of research and found a doctor that was really supportive around perinatal anxiety and, you know, postpartum health. So they booked me an appointment with her and she was lovely and, you know, gave me a script for antidepressants and I started them straight away. I felt worse and then I felt much better. How do you mean by worse? I think the first two or three weeks as you get used to taking the antidepressants, they often say that that's a time when you have to watch out for people. For the first two weeks, I felt truly awful, really, really bad. And then slowly but surely, I just started to feel a little bit less scared. It didn't consume my every waking hour. Just little by little, I started to breathe a little. And Jessie was so supportive. She'd say things like, okay, well, maybe let's just turn off one of the alarms tonight. Like, let's just start with one maybe of them. steps. Yeah, so, you know, you can have a two-hour sleep or whatever. So we kind of worked towards small incremental steps. It was important for you to have people around you who could see the bigger picture yeah. could take those tiny steps in the meantime. Yeah, so important. And I just wonder what it must be like for people who don't have that support and that's why I'm so passionate about sharing my story because it's so lonely and it's so isolating like I felt so alone even though I was surrounded by the most amazing people and I just think imagine going through this and not having a supportive partner not having an amazing sister not having an amazing sister-in-law not having all of these good friends and people around I don't know what would have happened to me if I didn't have them.
0: You have this beautiful community on social media, this huge following you and and, and Jessie and Tide, and you talk about sharing your story. There comes with that a degree of nervousness when you first put it out there. Did you have any of that sort of worry when you made that first step to say, I have PNDA and I'm going to get better, but this is our situation.
1: I kind of introduced it not in a way that I was making a grand gesture and thinking, right, today's the day I'm going to share this big news. It just was so much a part of my life and so all-consuming that it was just natural that it fed into the things that I chose to share on a daily basis. And I've always believed in just being transparent and truthful about things. So I did just say, guys, I'm struggling, or I just said how I was feeling. And then I just ended up sharing more and more because more people reached out to me and said, thank you so much. I've been going through this. I don't know who to talk to. And I started realizing that there's a whole group of people out there that really are isolated and lonely. It helps other people. Do you think it helped yourself? I think it was quite cathartic, Mm. which I didn't realize at the time. But I think There is something powerful about being completely honest and completely transparent, being totally yourself, even if that part of you is flawed and messy and scary and all of those different things. I think there is something really nice about being authentically yourself, and then to do that and have it be received so well. I think that was, honestly, a huge part of my healing process. I really am glad that that I did share it. You'd moved away
0: from the city and you were, to some extent, quite isolated, but you seemed to build your own community.
1: Yeah. I mean, we originally started the account to campaign for marriage equality because we got engaged and then obviously couldn't get married. So we thought, you know, what can we do to make a difference? So we made our Instagram and started sharing our lives and started, you know, really campaigning for marriage equality. And then we ended up on the TV adverts for marriage equality and on billboards around the country. And so I guess... From the very beginning, our public persona sharing on Instagram was very much about advocacy and campaigning and sharing our true authentic selves and I think we've just continued to do that from those early days.
0: The irony is there are still stumbling blocks for LGBTQI couples when they go through this journey of, of, of parenthood that shouldn't be there in this day and mm. age but they are. What sort of things did you experience?
1: People just don't necessarily use the correct language. It's hard, especially for Jesse, to hear when people say, who's mum? We'll walk in a room, who's mum? Which one of these mum? We are both mum. Yeah. It's those little things. Even recently, we went to the children's hospital with Tide. One of the neurologists that we're seeing there rightfully needs to understand Tide's history because they're treating Tide for some complex medical things. With that comes understanding Tide's DNA. So it's completely accurate that they would want to understand who is the donor, what is their health history, does the donor have any history of X, Y and Z because that can help rule out different things. And that is fine. At the end of the day, Tide's biology is so important and we want to have honest conversations. Tide knows his donor, Tide sees his donor regularly. I think there's no secrets there. It's really important to not keep that hidden or make that seem like a shameful thing. Like, you can honour both. Tide has two mums, but Tide also has a donor that is where his biology, his makeup, his culture comes from, and he loves his donor very much too. But people in medical circles will often be like, anyway, so tell me about dad, and does dad have this, and does dad have that? And I just think it's such an easy thing to just say donor. Like, what does the donor do? it's just such an easy swap, but you would be so surprised how often we hear the word dad all the time.
0: How many times do you think those assumptions may have not made your mental health worse, but certainly didn't help it better?
1: It doesn't help. I think it probably affected Jesse more than me because I am the biological mum. So even when people are saying who's mum, we are both mum, but in their mind, if they're misunderstanding, I am still mum. Whereas Jessie, there's that confusion there. Well, well, what's your role in this? Which you shouldn't have to justify to no, anyone. No. So that's something that she struggled with during the pregnancy and also, you know, after Tide was born a little bit because she was trying to find her place in this relationship when lots of people kept trying to point out that her place didn't belong. I think non-birthing parents don't get enough credit Because what they deal with is actually really scary. And I think people focus a lot on the birthing person and their experience. And rightly so, because, you know, we do a lot of the hard work and have all the pain, but it doesn't minimise what the non-birthing parent goes through. And that can be traumatic too. And I think non-birthing parents can suffer from postnatal depression and anxiety too, So I think, yeah, we need to give sometimes give them a little bit more credit as well. How lucky is Tide, though? Oh, my God. I love him so much. He is just the funniest guy, the funniest baby. The 15 months, that age range is just so fun, isn't it? They still love you. Oh, my God. (laughs) They're not throwing tantrums. Oh, my God. And everything is amazing, isn't it? Everything is amazing. Certainly before I had postnatal anxiety and depression... I guess I didn't really understand it. I mean, I, for one, didn't even know postnatal anxiety existed. I just thought it was depression. I thought it was just sadness, and I honestly, and I, I hate to say it because it sounds so naive and judgmental, but. I just assumed that maybe the issue was that they hadn't bonded with the baby or maybe they felt sad or maybe they even regretted the baby, Like, and which is just ridiculous to think because I'm quite a worldly person. I think I have a good grasp of mental health issues and different things, but I just did not understand what it was. The issue for me, it was never to do with how much I loved Tide. I think if anything, it was to do with I was... So in love with him, so obsessed with him that it was terrifying to love something so much and be so responsible for caring for this little, tiny little blob.
0: (laughs) But you're proof that you can love someone that much, but it doesn't have to cripple you.
1: Yeah, it's true. And it gets easier every day because they become a bit more resilient and better at communicating their needs. It gets easier. It gets so much easier as each day goes on. And I do give myself credit too because I think, you know, I'm getting better too, mm. but I'm really enjoying motherhood now. Like I really love it.
0: What would you say to to other LGBTQI parents and families out there who are about to embark on the journey, knowing there are challenges out there, how do you, how do you protect yourself?
1: I would say find supportive people, like find your village, build your village if you don't have one. Like if you don't have other LGBT people around you, or you don't have other strong allies, people who are are supportive, then seek people out. I mean, there's plenty of options on the internet. You just want to have like-minded people around you. You don't want to be in a situation where no one really understands your individual struggles or even something as simple as the different milestones within the IVF process. People have no idea what you're going through. And I think it's important to I guess, have people around you that at a minimum, bare minimum, understand and more than that, support. Just recently, you you shared something online
0: which really hit me. It was a poem that you wrote when Mm. you were really, really not well. It's quite long and people can go on to your Instagram to find it. But it, it starts with, if a tree falls alone, does it still make a sound? And you ended it by saying, defeated when the baby sleeps, cry when the baby cries, one by one, the leaves are falling as the tree slowly starts to die. That's how you were feeling mm-hmm. inside at the time, mm-hmm. slowly dying in this in this tree that was falling and no one was around to see it. Now, though, when you look back on that and you see how far you've come and that you have created this village, you must be so proud.
1: Yeah. When I wrote that poem, I was really at my lowest. I was completely alone because Jesse had gone to film a TV show in Tasmania because we didn't have any money, obviously, when I'd made her quit her job, and then I was starting to feel a little bit better. But she just took this opportunity to go on this TV show to win, you know, possibly a big cash prize. I was totally alone and then those crazy storms here, there was actual trees being uprooted all around me. And I was alone with this baby and I just felt so lost. I was just, like, laying on the floor of my lounge room, like, sobbing, like, absolutely crying. I ended up writing that poem, but I didn't share it with anyone. I didn't even share it with Jessie at the time. I just put pen to paper and wrote that poem. I wrote down a lot of thoughts and feelings I only found the poem more recently when one of my very good friends, she has had a baby and she's actually been suffering with postnatal anxiety as well and I didn't know quite how to support her and I really cared about her but I thought, oh, I remember this poem that I wrote and I decided to send it to her and said, I absolutely understand where you're coming from and what you're going through and then I thought, oh, do you know what, I'm just going to post it because I just want people to know that they aren't alone even when you're at your absolute worst, there's still hope that you can get better.
0: So if people want to follow your journey, where do they go to on social media?
1: So you can follow us on Instagram. So it's Jessie. So that's J-E-S-S-I underscore and underscore Millie M-I-L-L-I-E. Millie, thank you.
0: Thank you. We heard from Millie about the many hurdles she and partner Jesse face becoming parents and how those hurdles impacted her anxiety. Although Millie is able to laugh about these experiences now, at the time they were confronting and isolating. To discuss this further, we have program clinician Amelia Walker here from the Gidget Foundation. Amelia, I guess uh, having a baby for any couple is a challenging experience, but particularly for LGBTQI couples and families, there's a whole nother journey there that adds an extra layer, doesn't it?
2: Absolutely. I think the conversations need to start a lot earlier and preparations. There's an enormous commitment to this decision making, and that's an emotional commitment. It's a commitment as a couple and making decisions about which roles that we might take and how we feel about that and also a financial commitment that some heterosexual couples don't face. Yes, the romance might be taken out of it, but the level of intimacy that it requires to have those conversations and really get to understand each other and each other's desires is actually something that a lot of other couples might be missing. So there might be a lot of sex happening, but intimacy actually might be missing.
0: Millie spoke a lot about being such an optimistic, relaxed person previously. And then when Tide came along, almost catastrophizing and fearing the worst
2: playing out. How often do you see that? Those tendencies are very common in people experiencing perinatal anxiety. Catastrophizing, I guess, is is a way of us almost feeling like we've got some control over a situation that feels so beyond our control. If we can exercise the thought, then it can't happen. And alongside that can be sort of some OCD tendencies as well. And of course, they're not uncommon experiences for people. And if you start noticing it in yourself, if it's consuming your day, if it's stopping you from getting on with day-to-day functioning, then it's really important to be able to seek some help. And again, it's about partners and loved ones noticing that behaviour as well and maybe just checking in because the person enacting those things for them, it's really important to pursue and keep going. So sometimes we need an external intervention.
0: Let's talk about those OCD tendencies because they can seem quite harmless. I've been through them myself. Mine was repeatedly locking the car door because I just wasn't sure if it was locked. So I would pressed that button about a dozen times or I was always worried when I walked out the door that I'd left the iron on. And it would just be a natural instinct to go back and check it, but I'd then go back and check a dozen times and and wouldn't get out the door. In Millie's case as well, it became almost quite crippling that if she didn't do what her brain was
2: telling her to do, something bad would happen. To interrupt that behaviour for the person for whom it's so important is terrifying, and again, it, we really need some external intervention to sort of break those cycles and to really break down what is actually happening. What are you feeling? What are you fearing? And in Millie's case, you know, she was just describing the magnitude of love and responsibility that she felt for this little being. If there's opportunity then to sort of, we're looking at that behavior, but then we're also having conversations about what that responsibility has meant to her and what that love means for her and that longing now lived out in this little being, then we can start sort of looking at how we can manage some of those other behaviours.
0: Millie, having a miscarriage early on and having a traumatic birth, it doesn't help with those catastrophising
2: thoughts, does it? It doesn't. And often for people who have experienced a loss in the perinatal period, the grief around that loss often comes when there is another conceived child because we're sort of reliving certain moments and certain milestones as well. So while we're focusing on this new conception, this new birth, it's also important where possible to be able to really honour that loss and take some time to, to grieve that as well.
0: Millie and Jessie's story is so important and so powerful because it is a representation of what LGBTQI couples and families go through when having a baby but also through the process of of being treated for PNDA. What sort of impact does it have on a couple and on a
2: family when you're treating
0: them when they are an LGBTQI couple or family?
2: I think what can be extremely hard is finding and accepting and affirming environment to have that support I would hope that any parent who needs support feels that they can reach out but I'm also really mindful that a lot of affordable mental health services have an affiliation with church for example. These institutions historically have discriminated against this community and so these are barriers for people who feel like they do need some support. Where do I go? Where will I be affirmed and accepted? And so I think early conversations when you're planning the conception of your child about where we might go if we do need support once the baby comes, sort of doing a little bit of pre-research or even if you've had mental health support in the past, relinking in with that person if they felt like there was someone who you could really trust.
0: We put these uh, labels on birthing partner and non-birthing partner as well. Those labels can be really damaging as well in some respects. We we have two mums here, we have two dads here. They both
2: are creating this child together, aren't they? I love that you've said that actually because I I guess what I've really noticed in the last few years of just being in this workspace is that, you know, for a period of time we spoke about mums and postnatal depression and then the picture grew and it's perinatal and it's mums and dads because even including dads, is relatively new in that picture. And then we start saying birthing and non-birthing parents. This is where we have to remain open and receptive to the full picture, which is, yes, it's not just a birthing and non-birthing parent. It's two mums, two dads, two parents, one parent. So looking at how that family described their parenting journey and the people who are part of that family unit.
0: So it's important
2: to to realise
0: that whether you are the birthing parent or not, you are still at risk of PNDA.
2: Yes, it's a very vulnerable time and the conversation needs to include every member of that family. Millie did describe how as the mother who gave birth, there's particular focus and attention. And then for Jessie, maybe that focus and attention that could have been really helpful for her in processing what she'd witnessed her partner go through in that birth was really lacking and having very inclusive views over the whole family unit is crucial for the baby.
0: And for any parent who's given birth or or non-birthing partner, the Gidget Foundation provides support irrespective of what role you play in bringing
2: up that child. We do. We support all parents and welcome anyone who needs that support and we really do like to look at the whole family unit as well so we do find as well and can be quite interesting that sometimes it's the person who's given birth that gets that referral because sometimes it might be more evident that they're experiencing certain things and i think also just culturally we tend to check mum first check mum first mm. and assume if someone's teary that they need help but it's the silent elements that someone else can be experiencing as a support person in those early days. It can be a bit more latent, and so we find that it's really important to try and engage that other person as well where, where needed.
0: Millie and Jesse have created this extraordinary community and following. It's proof out there that build it and they'll come, and if you don't have it, you can create it.
2: Millie and Jessie's voice is so important and obviously needed and what it takes for people to come and share their story here in these podcasts, but also in other forums like Instagram can be extremely helpful. And I think for people who are going through difficult times, being quite discerning about who it is that you're engaging with, are they aligned with your values? Do they speak to the part of you that needs to be heard? And dismissing people where it might be just sort of scratching an itch and really engaging with services and voices that feel aligned with your values.
0: And at the end of the day, Todd is one lucky little boy. He's got two powerhouse
2: women. (laughs) (laughs) He sure does. I would love to meet him. Amelia, thank you. Thanks, Davina.
0: This podcast is a listener production made in partnership with Gidget Foundation Australia. Producer is Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens, with audio production from Kelly Falston. Listener.